Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zorja. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington University, and I'm joined by... Giselle Donnelly. I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Today, we're joined by Henry Sokolsky, who is the executive director of the Nonproliferation Policy Education Center, and will talk to us about um, nuclear power plants and the dangers of these. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Henry, thanks again for joining us. And we're going to start off with the most recent article that you published on the danger of nuclear power plants. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned in this article, and I know you and I have talked about before, we're going to link to your article in the show notes of, um, of this episode, is how countries around Ukraine are also threatened. And I remember when I uh, was last summer on the Eastern Front in Ukraine, Romania and Poland um, in, in the region, um, I was hearing on the radio regularly um, while driving around that iodine pills have been uh, distributed um, and should not be taken without any um, incident um, because it's dangerous. And that sort of had a very dark tone to it already last summer when the drama around the Zaporizhia power plant was um, was just starting and there were discussions about Chernobyl in the early days of this war. So what inspired your article, the latest one that I just mentioned, and your center's research into the military vulnerabilities of nuclear power plants? Actually, uh, it was inspired by uh, some research I began to do six years ago, halfway around the globe. The uh, Taiwanese had just elected a new president that had committed to getting rid of their three operating power reactors by 2025. And I had been asked to go visit, talk with the government about what that might re entail. And when I visited, I got the impression that they didn't have their act together to replace these reactors and that there was a tremendous push to build yet another one still. And I suggested to them that they needed to think about sharing and discussing publicly what the military vulnerabilities of those plants might be. That sparked some commissioned research by my center to take a look at what various kinds of missile attacks from the mainland against those reactors might do in the way of forcing evacuations uh, on the island. And it was pretty grim. That information was dialed into their own review and their own explanation of why a referendum uh, with regard to building that fourth plant should be rejected. And it succeeded. They now, in addition, do radiological fire drills near those plants. So that's what got it started. And then I did some work on the Middle East. Uh, and now, of course, <laughs> Zaporizhia is a focal point. 
I want to ask you about Zaporizhia too, but let me ask you a twofold question here um, based on some of the conversations that we've had before. So the first one would be if, if you can give us an overview of the Zaporizhia power plant in terms of the threats um, and how we can look at what it w- could be happening um, in the next few months, if this escalates um, over there, that's one question. But I remember you telling me also that the Zaporizhia power plants were not as uh, vulnerable as the power plants, the nuclear power plants in southern Ukraine um, that are not occupied um, by the Russians. So with that in mind, can you talk us through the dangers of Zaporizhia and how it's different from other nuclear power plants? I don't think it's that different. I don't I don't remember thinking that the southern plant was all that different since it has the same reactors with regard to vulnerability. These plants uh, have a somewhat uh, softer containment top than the... Westinghouse reactors that might be sold, uh, or I should say might be built. They, people are talking as though they have been sold. Come to the uh, showroom and pick out a reactor. Yeah. In any case, they have the spent fuel uh, ponds, luckily, inside the containment buildings, but they have immense vulnerabilities uh, with regard to maintaining electricity that is external and required to make sure that the coolant pumps keep the fuel, both in the spent fuel ponds and in the core, sufficiently cool that they don't melt down, create gases that then, you know, might rupture the containment building. Um, There are a lot of different ways in which you can make that external electricity stop coming in, and, and the Russians certainly have done their damnedest to uh, play this like a violin. They've, there were four external lines, that uh, power lines, into the Saparisha plant that have been uh, knocked down at various times. Then there's the problem that you go to emergency diesel generators to make electricity on the site, but they need diesel fuel. And at various times, the amount of fuel has uh, been limited from 15 days down to several days. And Perils of Pauline, if if that uh, diesel generator system fails, you're really shaving things very, very thin. And you could have a um, Fukushima-like event, uh, which would force an evacuation of a pretty wide area. Uh, and there's still several hundred thousand people near the plant. Henry, what do we know thus far about what has physically happened to the plant in the course of the invasion and, you know, how much damage it may have sustained uh, thus far. The the, the, yeah. the Russian forces that initially occupied the facility don't seem to have been very well briefed on what they were getting into. And then also sort of on the other end, if there's a struggle to sort of liberate Zaporizhia, will how constrained will that be by the need for safety, essentially? 
Good questions. Let me answer the second one first. The uh, radiological uh, military uh, commander, I didn't know they had such officials, but they do, was very proud and announced. That, early does time. that mean he's irradiated? He made it very clear that the facility outside the, the perimeter of the gates had been mined. And he bragged that if if things were to go bad, then they were going to, quote unquote, take down the plant. So, you know, this is a kind of like a, a, a small version of uh, threats to use tactical nuclear weapons. In other words, we're going to explode this thing if you get close to us. Well, uh, I, I don't know if that bluff should be, you know, uh, taken seriously, but it's certainly... It'd be hard to see how, how landmines... I guess they're anti-personnel landmines or something like that. Or uh, no, mine. I say the facility is mine. What it's oh mine, inside the know. inside. Oh, okay, sorry. Okay, and there is a problem. There also are water conduits going in and out of the plant, and and if you blow those up, you deprive the plant of the, of the water, water it needs. Yeah. So you know there are lots of ways to leave your lover here. In addition, the plant has already, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the, the uh, lines have been dropped. Uh, the power lines have basically been felled. But there was also a transformer uh, on the plant that was uh, hit and taken out. And, of course, there have been rounds that have, uh, you know, launched themselves into the containment building. One of the plants, uh, luckily, it didn't penetrate. And the spent fuel casts which are outside of the plant as distinct from the spent fuel that's inside and wet ponds uh, has been targeted so it's not been a quiescent scene i mean it, it, it's it's very nerve-wracking and every week there's a perilous appalling story and where they you know go on emergency generator mode uh, which if anything like that was happening out, outside of a war zone it would be headline news we have uh, tuned this out as if it's not an issue. To what extent, to kind of make sense of this, do you see, I mean, it is speculation, but but nevertheless, in having looked at these things for a long time, to what extent is it to you a matter of just psychological warfare and they're using, the Russians are using the power plant as one of two sort of, nuclear blackmail packages one would be we're going to use a tactical nuke um, on a battlefield somewhere the other is we're going to blow up Zaporizhia that's one scenario and then the other scenario to kind of maybe they don't exclude each other is do the Russians actually need or think they need Zaporizhia for um, fueling, for giving energy to Crimea. Um, I know there's been through time discussions of them trying to connect it somehow to Crimea, but is there more to the story? How do you see this? Is it just psychological warfare or do they actually need it? I'm reminded of the comment that just because uh, someone's paranoid, it doesn't mean they're wrong. In other words, psychological warfare doesn't generally work if it's a, a total joke. This is not a total joke. First of all, as Giselle pointed out, they may not fully have their brief. It's not as though they know how to operate the plant. It's one of the reasons they're kidnapping 
and culling the herd of disloyal people because they need them to run the plant. So uh, the ability to uh, cock up is ripe. It is, this is not a, another way to boil water. It's not a cold plant. There are a lot of things that can go wrong that they probably don't have a good reef on. And so I think we need to take the dismissal of some people Oh, it's just psychological warfare to say, no, they're, they're worried with cause and things can go wrong. Second of all, we don't really know. I mean, if people are going to take tactical nuclear weapons use seriously, why would this be this? You know, people surely take that seriously. I, mean, I think we take it too seriously, but it isn't something that you can totally disregard. Similarly, you can't hear uh, so you had a second question, though, and, and, and that was uh, about Crimea. Yeah, they would like to expropriate it, and they have done so. I mean, it's a, a cool theft of about, oh, I don't know, uh, $60 lot billion. Dollars. <laughs> well, no, but $60 billion of theft. I mean, you, you know, pretty soon, that's real money. Uh, and, and, and they would like to use it so that they can claim it is theirs. They're synchronizing and uh, organizing that is, is going to take more than a few weeks or months, however. But they've already said it's theirs, and they've already claimed that Ross Adam owns it. Well, okay, so the Russians have claimed many things about Ukraine that uh, are difficult to, uh, you know, claims that are difficult to fulfill. The, the other sort of, Crimean aspects to all this. I mean, there's been a huge amount of sort of speculations uh, as to which way the winds would blow uh, if there were a, a leak or an accident or a meltdown mm-hmm. or uh, you mm-hmm. name it. But the you know the the conventional wisdom seems to be that the prevailing winds are from the west and the north, putting. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, occupied Ukraine, Crimea, and maybe not to worry. Not to worry. We, we can count on the wind. Okay, but let's actually bother to look at the prevailing wind. It does prevail, but there are times where it goes south. There are times when it goes north. And there are, you know, probabilities that change uh, seasonally. And you can go on the web and look at this. And when you do, if you're Turkish, you're in big trouble. Okay, and as we've seen, this war, unfortunately, has not been fought over one week. We're going into a year here pretty soon. So you get all four seasons, that should be a worry. Henry, I would be remiss if we didn't take advantage of your presence and your expertise to expand the conversation to cover the whole nuclear waterfront in the context of this war. It has introduced conversations that us uh, ex-cold warriors, you know, either recall or, uh, you know, may have thought had disappeared into the mists of time. You know, everything from, as you said, the threats to use tactical nuclear weapons to most recently uh, Xi Jinping saying, we don't think nuclear using nuclear armaments is a, is a great idea there, Vlad. And even the Russian MFA promising that they would never, 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 never do this. Yeah, I'd just be interested in your overall reaction to the the 
nexus of issues that this conflict has again brought back to the fore. Well, I think Putin understands there are people in our age cohort, uh, we're not young, by the way, who love uh, the old... uh, But we're not dead. We're not dead. And and actually in government, we're present in large numbers still. So they appeal to them, you know, by going Cold War. And it works. I mean, there's a piece by Miss Applebaum I recommend if everyone take a look at, just put out, where, you know, if that violin music works, he plays it. However, I think the smart money is trying to think on how things are changing, not how we might go back and make nuclear weapons great again. And I think that that's where these nuclear plants present a special uh, additional headache that no one has thought about. And to our total discredit, we persist in not thinking about it, both outside of the government and within it. So we get, uh, generally, uh, we uh, be kind of caustic here. We, uh, if we're concerned about hugging Mother Earth, we're willing to do it to death with nuclear power plants being built in addition in war zones like Poland, Romania where we're subsidizing their construction and not thinking about what we might do to build them differently, if that would help at all, or doing any analysis. On the, on the right, I think there's this notion that, oh, well, uh, we're still fighting a culture war against Earth Day 1969. If they <laughs> wouldn't wear their bras and smoke dope, and they were opposed to nuclear power, it's our job to be in favor of it. And so we can't say a discouraging word about putting these things uh, in places where you have to have your head examined. You raise raise the specter of like Ron DeSantis wearing a bra in protest, which I'm just going to not follow up on. (laughs) Well, but what I'm getting at is that we have a political air gap or sort of a vacuum. And, you know, the Hill's been incredibly silent about this on the right and the left. I just find it amazing. Uh, Now, usually what happens is this is the discount value of being earlier first on an issue. You get ignored. But it'll come due if with any bad luck at all. And and, and it's a shame we're not getting on it early. You know, this is interesting what you're bringing um, into the conversation. And there's also a political dimension to this. Um, Maybe the fact, maybe the fact that we're silent, especially here on the Hill, is um, sort of an understanding. And I'm sure you will explain to us why, why this understanding is wrong, that building nuclear power plants or supplementing them in uh, Romania and in Poland is something that actually has been over the last few years bipartisan. The logic of mm, bidding and making uh, making sort of deals or whatever a memoranda of understanding um, with Romania and Poland, its strategic allies of the United States, was that before that, in the years of Trump and Pompeo, it was the Chinese that were courting. And, um, and so the pushback has been against China, uh, in Europe 
and saying better than the Chinese building nuclear power plants or amplifying them with additional reactors, yeah. um, let's have the Americans do it because the French wouldn't bid on it and, and all of that. And yeah. so... Yes. So maybe, you know, and now it's continued, so it's officially bipartisan. But can you tell us in this light a bit more in terms of what the issues are with building these? Um, I know, for instance, I don't know to what extent our audience knows that, that when the Russians are building um, nuclear power plants uh, like in um, Belarus, They built a little military uh, military defense um, uh, around it uh, and with dedicated, uh, you mentioned that in your article too, with dedicated missile defense systems. Um, is that not something the United States is doing? And how does not. it fit into the Of country? course not. What are, you, are you suggesting that these plants aren't robust with regard to containment? This is the sentence you hear over and over again. Look, the problem with these plants is who's going to pay for them? And the answer is, oh, well, we've, we're in a post-economic uh, uh, world where you know, money and financing doesn't matter. We just simply print it and we'll have, have, have uh, the Export-Import Bank help finance these plants. How much are they going to cost? Oh, well, they say five to six billion. Good luck. No one has built a plant of that size in Europe for anything less than about 13 to 15 billion. Uh, I guess we don't care about that. Well, okay. As far as defenses, if you started talking about defenses, my suspicion is people might get cold feet. Best not to bring that up. Get it built. Maybe we'll think about that after we build it, which is not a complete thought. There are not just active defenses after all, but passive defenses. Do you want to bury it? Do you want to build it with high-performance, ultra-high-performance concrete, drive the price up, but it would be more resilient? Do you want to build uh, the safety features different? There are some vulnerabilities even to the AP-1000 that could be corrected if you were very worried. No, no, let's not talk about it. So I think essentially we come up with all these wonderful rationales about the Chinese or You know, this is a way to, you know, reduce the amount of natural gas that might be consumed. But nobody's thinking about what we're seeing on the front page every day about Zaporizhia. And they say, oh, well, that's a one-off. It's not going to happen again. Okay, that's one way to go. And, and maybe you're right. I mean, you can't prove the future is going to go one way. But that seems to me to give glibness a bad name. Well, and even if you build... You know, the kind of defenses that have been built with the extended range and extended precision of modern conventional weaponry is very, very difficult to either defend against or eliminate the threats that actually might be the most uh, uh, most worrisome. I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, I, one of the things that you also want to look at is what's going on generally. Let's stop beating up nuclear power for just a moment, as much as fun as it might be, <laughs> uh, because it's quite a sitting duck. But I mean, take a look at the entire electrical uh, utility system. It's going yeah. to be attacked. Are we rethinking how we want to do that? It could be that people with helmets and people with Birkenstocks need to talk to one another. 
it could be that you have to do microgrid development uh, where you can go off the grid and still, you know, electrify or heat and cool various uh, parts of the economy. Right now, there are no choices. It's central, generated, grid distributed, and that's it, whether it's nuclear or non-nuclear. That may not be smart anymore. You know, um, it is what we've done. And, yes. And well, especially uh, in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, and quite rightly, there's been a, a lot of talk about realigning uh, the a whole host of infrastructure you know, the approach, the overall approach to infrastructure with a view towards uh, not only improving the quality of life for Central and Eastern Europeans in particular, but in knitting together the political community and the security community in a way that would reduce vulnerabilities, you know, basically a more north-south alignment than east-west alignment. Well, but this may require thinking now. We're going to rebuild Ukraine, you betcha. I don't care what people who don't want to spend money on Ukraine think. It's going to happen. Well, I, look you, for, I look forward to christening the Marjorie Taylor Green. Yes, well, you know, it's <laughs> nuclear <going> plant. <laughs> and, and the question is how we in the European Union do it. If we do it Mickey Mouse, resiliency against another attack of this sort will not be on the list. If we're smart, it will be. And if it is, I don't think building big plants, nuclear or non-nuclear, with a centralized distribution grid system is a complete thought. End of discussion. We might even have to suffer listening to the Germans. Getting energy advice from the Germans is not... (laughs) Well, I'm not going to have to sell you on that one, Henry. Okay, let me sell you on that. The only thing worse than listening to the Germans on uh, electrical policy is listening to the French, half of whose fleet of reactors, which they didn't bother to maintain, are not functional. So, you know, excuse me. Okay, I'm looking for. I'm looking for a third option here. Okay. People need to start reading. And stop talking so much about what they know. Um, if you were to ask, to be asked to give advice um, on what it is beyond nuclear power plants, yeah. <laughs> we yes. got the, the, the gist of that um, in um, by the government in Warsaw or in Bucharest, um, yes. looking also at what is happening now, you know, Moldova, not just Ukraine, but Moldova not having access yeah. to energy, desperate tra- uh, ways to try to connect um, energy infrastructure. What recommendations would you give? You can pick well, Warsaw okay. or Bucharest if, or both. Immediately, we've got to figure out how to make storage uh, happen initially in a probably a more vulnerable way, which is you know building it on land. But there are ways to make uh, storage and depots uh, pretty hard to hit. We need to start investing in that right away. We need to actually do what mistrust did and was immediately reversed on, which is open up uh, France, Great Britain, Germany. Get this to figuring out how to tap the natural gas that they have underneath their own soil and and figuring out the incentive system to do that. We need to 
work the grid that we have, which may be vulnerable, but can be made to switch much better and quicker to move what electricity we have more efficiently. If you do this, according to independent uh, systems operators in Germany, you could reduce your natural gas requirements by as much as 30 percent. I don't know if that's true, but there's a big investment there that you can make that will have impact within 36 or 48 months or less. Finally, you've got to invest intelligently in, yes, renewables, uh, you know, and microgrids and things of that sort. Now, you're going to continue to use what you've got. You're going to use nuclear where you've got it. And if you can continue to use nuclear, do so. But, and the same with, dare I say it, dirtier things. But you're going to have to change the order of battle. Uh, for energy policy and use, I think, many, many more market signals than we are doing in the, in the, in the front end. In the front end, uh, natural gas, it still makes sense. Uh, you know, so instead of fighting that, we should be leaning into that. But the, the short answer is it isn't going to be easy. It's going to be painful, but it isn't what we're doing. What we're doing is believing that in 10 years' time, we can solve this with a nuclear wand. What about Ukraine? Um, they have now, I, I mean, we don't have a clear overview, but they say that, what, 40% of their um, energy overall infrastructure has been destroyed. Ukraine, yes. before the war, had one of the largest storage capacities, apropos what you were saying. Yeah. So, Looking at the Ukraine scenario in terms of lessons learned for others in the region, too, as you're doing, um, what would you suggest they do? Well, I think they need to stop building large targets. That would be the first thing, even if it costs a little more. Second of all, it's quite interesting. When you talk to the energy experts there, their number one demand right now is for coal. <laughs> I can't get enough of it. Uh, so. You know, I think it's going to be quite difficult and and, and uh, very grim this winter. Everyone says this. I, it's it's got to be true. Uh, and and I, there are no quick fixes for that. But when you start investing, as you will, to rebuild the system, you'll not only want to have the, the, the features that uh, Giselle mentioned, which is connecting to other other grids, but having a second or Team B option, which would be to create and spend money on microgrids and being able to go off the grid and still be able to, uh, you know, live uh, and, and and light and heat your home. And I think I think those options now actually have a brief which has nothing to do with global warming. Yeah, you know, I can actually see Ukraine. Being much more open-minded in in that direction, simply, you know, they will have survived a, a you know, life-threatening uh, experience in this war, and will remain nervous, you know, about when the next round <laughs> is likely to start. And energy resilience, I would think, would be a very, a very high. Uh, desiderata on their uh, reconstruction 
program? Well, I think everyone's watched this. I think she understands this. North Korea understands this. It's a nifty option. Just grind them down. Go after their infrastructure. And therefore, everyone else who might fall under their ballistic missile and drone uh, range arcs needs to start putting on their thinking cap as well. I, w- I will point out that it hasn't been all that successful from a strategic point of view. What's uh, that? Uh, the, the Russian attacks on infrastructure. Well, not yet, but I, they really are doing a lot of damage. The other thing is, you know, how we measure morale and political, you yeah. know, capital is a little fuzzy. <laughs> no, but we do see the general outcome and... uh the Russians have more problems than we imagined they would, and the Ukrainians have turned out to be far more resilient well, than we Well, that's true so. enough, but it seems to me that when you start building and you start spending, best to stop digging a hole, and you need to maybe think about doing things differently. Well, no, we don't, we, don't, we don't want to give them a chance to be resilient. We want to give them a chance to be triumphant, right? Well, understood, but what I'm getting at is... I think there's a general policy point here that's kind of been denied. And that is, what are we doing with our public monies with regard to creating energy futures? And what are we focusing on as issues? I think that conversation is pretty anemic. Henry, I'm sure you can uh, improve the quality of discourse here. <laughs> well, you've given me a chance Today. Uh, yes, so your you. your message will now resonate far and wide across uh, northwest wa- Northwest Washington. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. All right, so before we let, <laughs> before we let you go, and on this topic, um, it is election week, and um, everybody is has been wondering about that, and so. Um, you know, for the for the next um, around, whatever the results are, I'm hoping the Pentagon and others are asking you for advice. Um, but if they do or they don't, <laughs> no, you're, he's shaking his head. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. we can only we can only talk here about the hope. Um, so then, um, apropos exactly what you were saying in terms of doing lessons learned from how strategically we fail to prevent some of these things um, that are happening now in Ukraine, looking at through the war and into reconstruction, whatever that might be, what would your recommendations be um, for the government here and, of course, for the Hill in terms of Ukraine and beyond the region? If you have, you know, um, if you have a couple of those, um, yeah. what are your main messages looking at the next couple of years? It's high time that the Pentagon follow the law. And in the law, it's supposed to weigh in on an assessment of the national security implications of nuclear exports that are licensed. They're part of the part of the process formally. I don't know that they take that very seriously, but they should now because it will allow them to do something I don't think has been done and I know has not been done publicly. And that is an assessment of the vulnerabilities and the kind of military and diplomatic uh, fallout that would occur if you placed certain plants in war zones. Certainly they have a brief there. 
Not only that, but of course, they have a program to put uh, military uh, reactors that they're developing into war zones. Now, I suspect they've fallen off that argument because it, it, it would be a hard sell. But they need to do that assessment and do it publicly. However embarrassing or unsound it might be, it needs to be public as well as private. So that's the first thing. The second thing is they need to uh, take a look at what international law applies to us and ought to apply to anyone else, even those who did not sign up to that law, which would include the Russians. And that is, there is a protocol that says that the, the commanders should uh, not target nuclear electrical uh, plants. Uh, and and there all there's, although there are exceptions, it's very difficult to get to those exceptions. We have chosen in the Law of War Manual that the Pentagon puts out to kind of kick the can. We signed this agreement. We didn't ratify for, for other reasons. And we kind of excuse ourselves from having to do anything and, and give the commander a, a, a blind check. The problem with that is what if we actually, quote unquote, find the Ukrainians winning this war? Surely they're going to want, as uh, the president of Ukraine has made clear, to hold the Russians accountable for violations of what they think are the proper rules. We're not kind of positioned well unless we do a better interpretation and scrub of that manual so that we're sitting on the correct side of history if that occurs. You know, a lot of commanders, even in the Second World War, who were Nazis, didn't do certain things like blow up Paris, uh, to use one example, uh, because they were afraid of that. We need to put the fear of that in the minds of people on the ground who are Russian now. And so some of this requires doing some software work, legal. I would encourage the Pentagon to do that review, and I would encourage the Hill to demand clarity as to what our position is on these things. That's a very clear statement, then. Thank you so much for joining us. From me, Yulia Zorja, and my friend, Giselle Donnelly. And Dottie Burrow had an absence. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. To stay up to date with the Eastern Front, please give us a follow on Twitter at Eastern Front Pod, one word, and sign up for a newsletter through the link included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.